This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Historically, many Americans have tended to think of trauma as something that happens to individuals, like victims of crimes and veterans of wars and, and those who work as emergency responders. But increasingly in recent years, some folks have also recognized that trauma happens to groups of people, those who are marginalized and who suffer from systemic aggression based on their race or religion or sexuality. But during the COVID-19 crisis, many people have come to recognize that, well, we're all in the midst of a widespread societal trauma, one that will very likely stick with us long after this pandemic is over. And, you know, it might be easy when we talk about this sort of widespread impact to forget about the fact that within this shared experience are those who are suffering from the compound impact of individual and systemic traumas. Stacy Leadham is a clinical counselor and an assistant professor of counseling at Cleveland State University. She's studied the effects of COVID-19 racial discrimination on Chinese Americans. She's looked into the psychological distresses suffered by healthcare workers, and she's examined the psychological plight of essential workers. And she's joining us today from her home in Ohio. Stacy Leadham, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It sounds like you really did your homework. I, I try. Um, Hey, listen, even if someone was pretty naive to the idea that widespread trauma could be compounded by pre-existing disparities, the early days of this pandemic in the United States created some pretty, well, some pretty heinous examples of how racism was going to make this experience harder for Asian Americans. Do you remember when you began to see these reports of Asian Americans being confronted with racist aggression related to the virus? When I think about the earlier moments in the COVID-19 pandemic, I really think about last March when we started to see an increase in anti-Asian discrimination, not just from our leaders in politics, but also in social media. So we were seeing a lot of rhetoric that touted COVID-19 as the China flu or the Wuhan virus. And this really perpetuated xenophobic or xenophobic, which is hatred against Chinese individuals, language that was used to bolster further acts of anti-Asian discrimination and violence. And so it was like the social media, like the canary in the coal mine for what was about to happen? I think so. You know, when I think about Facebook and Twitter and, and Reddit, it really represents a microcosm of how a smaller subset of Americans feel. And so you can typically see, in my opinion, the trends that may happen across sociopolitical climates based on what we see on social media. And it's not a 180. You were already writing about people in trauma, but you really quickly moved your research, which was very, very focused on uh, survivors of sexual exploitation, to this issue. Yes, yeah. So I am most well-known for my research in human sex trafficking. And right around March, again, seeing all of the hate crimes, anti-Asian discrimination in the news and politics really everywhere, I was, as a clinical counselor, trying to find something to work with so I could support my community. And when I dove into the literature, I was really surprised to find that no one had done the work yet. No one had done any research or any writing on the negative effects of anti-Asian discrimination following COVID-19. And as a foreign-born Filipina and Chinese woman, I just couldn't stand back and wait for someone else to do the work. So I rolled up my sleeves and did it myself. Okay, I love the fact that you said nobody had done this yet, because this was an, 
This was in April of 2020 that you, I mean, like you were on top of this. So COVID hits the United States, you know, in February, March of 2020. By April of 2020, you have published on this issue. Um, you know, I admittedly had a bit of luck on my side, or if you can call it luck. My uh, my partner is a frontline healthcare worker. And um, so he moved out when he started seeing COVID-19 patients. And uh, so I had, you know, all day and night to write. I didn't have to feed another human or take care of another person. And so I wrote that first article about um, the effects of racial trauma in Asian Americans following COVID-19. I wrote that bad boy in 48 hours. I want to get to that that bad boy, as you say, in a second here. But <laughs> but I want to come back to this thing. Your your partner was a healthcare worker. And so mm-hmm. your partner moved out. It must have been hard to lose that support structure for both of you, I would assume, in the midst of you know everything exploding. Yeah, it was challenging because I was already really nervous to go to the grocery store. I had faced my own experiences of discrimination and verbal assault at the gym and at the supermarket. And so my partner now had to drop off groceries to keep me safe. And um, yeah, so we, we made it work. He's, he's back home now and it's wonderful to have him back in my space. Can we talk a little bit about those experiences? Are you comfortable sharing those? Absolutely. I think it's important to put a voice and a story to our experiences. Tell me about what happened at the gym. So I was, um, it was leg day, can't skip leg day. And I was between machines and this gentleman came up to me. I have year round allergies and I must have coughed or cleared my throat. And he looked me in the eye and he said, why don't you take your Kung flu back to Wuhan? And he just... It really just shook me. I couldn't imagine that he was saying it to me. And I remember just feeling really hot and frozen in place. I didn't quite know what to do or what to make of it. Did you suspect at that point, early into this this pandemic in the United States, that you would be subject to something like that? Or did it, did it feel like it came out of nowhere? Or, or maybe both? I think on some level, I had expected it. I didn't expect it as soon as it happened. Um, You know, if you think back to what was happening last spring, we were in the midst of a lot of sociopolitical charged stories, including the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter movement. And so there were so many other things going on and I was kind of lost in all of it. And so I think I was just kind of shell-shocked when it came together. In this first paper... And again, this was back in April of 2020. It's, all, it's almost hard to think about how different the world was back then and how, how both little we knew and also how little we had been affected so far. Most of us had been affected so far by this pandemic. But you were already thinking in terms of how this long term was going to compound people's psychological states. You wrote that many Asian Americans were already suffering from racial discrimination and xenophobia and microaggressions. So they wouldn't just be facing the pandemic like everyone else was going to be facing the pandemic, but they were going to be facing this trauma on top of systemic racism and and also these acute acts of racism like what you felt at the gym. That's, That's a lot to carry. 
It is a lot to carry. And so I really felt this responsibility and obligation to do something to empower our community to be well and safe and healthy. And as you did, you saw this play out in mental health outcomes. Uh, Your study investigated how Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans coped with racial discrimination during COVID-19. And specifically, you found that most of the respondents in your survey had experienced and witnessed instances of COVID-19 related racism. So this wasn't just like a random act that you faced. This wasn't just like anecdotal evidence. It was the majority of the people who responded to your survey. There were, Mm -hmm. there not only a, a majority of them has experienced this, but you also found real measurable correlated health outcomes. Talk about that. So that study was interesting because we really focused on the experiences of Chinese migrants and Chinese Americans facing COVID-19 discrimination. And when I think about trauma, I think it's important to remember that it's not just the physical experience of it, but also the witnessing of it that can influence feelings of racial trauma. And so our study incorporated not just the physical experience, but also the witnessing of other people's trauma either through online videos, um, through the news, in media, online. And so we found that just experiencing or witnessing COVID-19 anti-Asian discrimination significantly predicted higher rates of depression and lower levels of life satisfaction. Just just with, so even if somebody didn't experience it themselves, but you know they're part of this community and they see it happen to another member of the community, it puts people on edge, it makes them nervous, it makes them sad. And all of those things have correlated health outcomes. Yeah, I think about the minority stress model. The more oppressed intersecting identity someone holds, the greater the stress, which contributes to things like chronic health problems, diseases, and mental health distress. So you think about an Asian American. Now, perhaps that person is also an immigrant and a woman, and someone who also may hold uh, a marginalized gender or sexual identity, all these things compound to influence lower health, um, higher rates of mental health distress and the like. Your work has also demonstrated that it it isn't just Asian Americans who have suffered from these compounding traumas during this pandemic. You've noted that people of color are less likely to have access to healthcare, less likely to be able to access vital health information in their native languages. They're more likely to work in, you know, what we call essential jobs where just going to work confers added risk of infection. All of these things add up for these populations, even if they're not the target of acute racism, like what you were hearing from your Chinese Americans and Chinese immigrants and and like what you felt yourself. So I did a best practices article on the deleterious ways in which BIPOC communities, specifically Black and Latinx individuals, may be more likely to negatively experience the effects of COVID-19 because they tend to be disproportionately placed in in healthcare, if you're a Filipino American, um, you're more likely to die from COVID-19 if you're in nursing. 
Um, but other individuals like Black and Latinx individuals are in essential fields where they're more likely to experience contact with the general public. So we're talking public transportation individuals. We're talking Amazon workers. I think a lot of us were using Amazon a lot in the early stages of pandemic and even now. And a great number of those are people of color. And so like like this transference of risk was happening. So the result of all of this, of all of these compounding stresses is greater psychological distress. So, so people who already had it hard were having it harder. Exactly. So individuals who are already facing lower levels of socioeconomic status are now having to balance, am I going to feed my family? And am I going to get sick and potentially put my family at risk? So this is a really challenging place that people in um, combined experiences of oppression have to face. There's no doubt that this pandemic is going to be a curse that keeps on hexing us for years, for decades really to come. Is it reasonable at this point to assume that the long-term psychological impacts of this pandemic are going to haunt people from communities of color harder and longer? I believe they will, unfortunately. I'm thinking about the influence of intergenerational trauma across BIPOC communities. I'm thinking about how individuals from communities of color are disproportionately harder hit. We're facing higher mortality rates, higher rates of illness, and lower access to important resources we need. So with this in mind, what does this mean in terms of what counselors should be preparing themselves for? And, and actually, let's talk about sort of like acutely right now, which is what kind of sets you down this path. What should counselors have in their toolboxes right now to deal with the acute traumas that people from these communities are facing right now? Mm. So this is a great question, and I'm glad we're going here. Because this call requires all counselors, specifically white counselors, to be aware of their privilege and to feel comfortable to address issues of white privilege, access, and racial discrimination and racial bias. I mean, and look, like, it's probably not a bad assumption on my part, although you can tell me if I'm wrong, that counselors tend to need a lot of education. They're probably more likely to be white people, which means they're more likely to make white assumptions when they're dealing with patients of color. Am I incorrect there? No, I think you're exactly correct. The majority of professional counselors and professional mental health care individuals do tend to be white folks. What do they need to know? What, what are the things that you really want them thinking about when they're seeing patients that are suffering these compounding traumas, as we discussed earlier? Hmm. I think it's important to be mindful of the difference between empathy and sympathy. So empathy requires counselors just to be able to appreciate how a client, perhaps a client of color, can feel some way based on their intersecting experiences. And it doesn't require them to have to understand it because it is truly difficult and some would say impossible for a white counselor to be able to understand the compounding issues and experiences of racial discrimination and other kinds of isms that compound on our marginalized clients. So for instance, counselors can shift their language from saying, 
oh, you experienced racism? I understand. Two, oh, you experienced racism? Tell me about that. That sounds really painful. Sounds like a slower and more deliberate process. Exactly. Yeah, chase the feeling. You've also mentioned in your writing that you know, there are some common assumptions about the way that people face and handle and hold trauma that are often wrong or at least not translatable to other cultural experiences, that mm. people from different cultural backgrounds carry trauma and handle trauma in very different ways. And, and that translates over into different counseling models that may or may not work. Exactly. So we have to remember that even though we have this really incredible system that we use as clinicians to communicate symptoms and and bodies of of disorders, the DSM-5 and the ICD-11, these are really developed and grounded in Eurocentric white individualistic modalities and, and perspectives. And so they don't quite capture the breadth of experiences from communities of color. So for instance, Many East Asian individuals somaticize our experiences of trauma. So we don't often have the language or the words or the experiences to say, I feel depressed. I feel anxious. More than likely, we may disclose things that are negatively affecting our ability to navigate our daily lives. So we may talk about things like chronic pain, back pain, neck pain, difficulty falling asleep, and even a loss of appetite. And so, and then based on sort of like traditional diagnostic models, a counselor might or a doctor might diagnose something that isn't the, the root of the problem. Exactly. I think that if we limit our perspectives, if we limit our diagnostic perspective just to this Eurocentric Western lens, and you're working with a client of color who's disclosing something a little bit different that doesn't quite fit that model, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the truly humanizing experiences of being a person of color, being in pain, facing racial trauma, and not using the correct buzzwords to get the diagnosis they need for help. Trauma, you know, for lack of a better word, is really sticky. Um, Mm. It can come back. It can stay with us for a very long time. What should counselors be preparing themselves for in the long term? I think that more often than not, counselors who do trauma work, we're kind of faced with two different possibilities. So we have two theories of trauma, the first of which is it's important for people to tell their story so they can identify the cognitive distortions and um, identify a more adaptive and helpful way of thinking about that story and then ultimately seeing themselves others in the world. The other modality posits that we don't have to recount our trauma narratives and we can just deal with kind of the symptoms that come up in our daily lives. So this is where we have really incredible modalities like EMDR, for instance. And I think that counselors moving forward sometimes think, well, I don't specialize in trauma and so I don't have to get trauma training. But I believe that it is really tough for anyone walking this earth to come out of their, you know, youth, adolescence, adult life completely unscathed from any kind of trauma. And that is big T trauma or little T trauma. And so people in counseling 
moving forward out of this experience are going to be probably more than ever right now confronting people whose whose specific traumas are going to be real. They're going to be they're going to be carried and they're going to be something that people are going to be dealing with for a long time. So so counselors are going to have to be dealing with that for a long time. Yes. So every good counselor has a good counselor. Um, <laughs> I actually have another publication coming out that talks about the um, the burnout and the vicarious trauma that many of our mental health professionals are facing now working and providing services in COVID. And that should be out maybe um, in March or over the summer. I wanted to ask you about that because you did some writing about how frontline or hospital workers are burning out, but there's got to be a similar effect among the, the mental health community. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, unfortunately, there is. Um, so we did a, um, a study with professional counselors across the country and found that disproportionately they are facing higher rates of vicarious trauma and burnout compared to cohorts who are not working. So what can be done to help the helpers right now? I think that for many individuals, this is professional mental health counselors, healthcare professionals and care professionals, you know, we get into this field because we care. We have this great big heart and we genuinely want to leave this world better than how we found it. And so I think it's really easy for us to put off our own wellness and our own self-care. We start to think, well, I can do this thing for myself tomorrow or on the weekend or at the end of the month. But that never comes because people will always need us. So before we know it, we have depleted all of our resources and we have nothing left to give. If you had a patient like this, you'd be like, no, you need to, what's the overused metaphor? You need to put your mask on, right? And, and yet the people who yes. are always saying that are, are likely to deny themselves the same self-compassion. Exactly. I like to call it aggressive self-care. I am like a big proponent of aggressive self-care. What is it that you need right now? And how do you get that? What about the rest of us? What What is the role of everyone? And, and particularly people of privilege, people who may have suffered through the pandemic, but didn't have to shoulder these compounding traumas. How, how does a decent and just society respond to the future we're about to enter? I think about the importance of compassion and unity and coming together as a society to fight injustice wherever it lives. And so this might look like standing up when you see something happen that you know is inappropriate or racist or discriminatory or marginalizing. There's a really wonderful way to do this and it's called um, a micro-intervention. So many people have heard of microaggressions from the work of Sue and Sue. And Sue was back at it again, and he developed micro-interventions, which are specific ways to interrupt microaggressions when they occur. And one of my favorite ways to do this that anyone can do is just to say, ouch. So if you are with coworkers or family or with a partner or friends, and someone says something discriminatory or racist or inappropriate, you can just say, ouch. And that little bit interrupts that person's feedback loop and cognitive process and communicate that something they've said doesn't quite sit well with you. And then moving forward, you as that person have the decision to decide, 
is this the best time to provide psychoeducation and explain how that's inappropriate and what can be done better instead? Or do we just walk away because it's not the time and place and let them reflect on that on their own? I always hesitate to suggest silver linings because the context here is a disease that's killed millions of people around our world and, of course, has disproportionately affected people from minoritized communities. But but I did want to ask whether you think we are learning from this experience things that are going to be helpful in the future. And and maybe more to the point, what, what have you been learning? I have seen much more awareness to the effects of trauma across a variety of communities. I'm seeing a greater openness to have really tough discussions about racial inequities and social determinants of health, challenges to access for mental health and public health. But I'm also seeing more people spending meaningful time together with the people they genuinely love. I can speak for myself. I've spent more time with my family than I probably have in a really long time. And it's really, it's really been wonderful. I think that the people in our lives that are connected to us stay connected to us, even in a pandemic. That's Stacey Leadham. She's a clinical counselor and an assistant professor of counseling at Cleveland State University. And she's been the author or co-author of several journal articles focused on how the COVID-19 crisis has impacted different groups in disparate ways. Stacey, thank you. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.